As was said, uh, my name is Jesse. I was here two weeks ago, and I'm grateful to be back. Um, my family and I were just, it was a gift to be uh, among you, and uh, not just because of the hospitality, but also I would say because of the hunger I sense in this room for knowing God, and like what easier job is it for a communicator than to be in a room of people that, that want to, to know him better. And so that's going to be our, our goal this morning as we continue our series in the Gospel of Luke. Luke. We're going to be in chapter 20. We're, we're still there. Um, I was here uh, in chapter 20 uh, two weeks ago, and I'm like, we're, yep, we're still, we're still here. We're making our way through. And it's, it's maybe, at, at first glance, a disappointingly short scene. And I hope uh, what happens in our time is that the Lord would highlight for us actually that the power in this scene, that we wouldn't miss it, that we would grasp it, and that not just at an intellectual level sort of go, oh, I understand that more. No, I know God better uh, for having done so. So I want to I read this through. Uh, it won't take long because it's only a few verses. Uh, and so I hope you'll join me. Luke chapter 20. Uh, we're going to start at verse 41, and we're going to make our way down to verse 44. So Luke 20, 41 to 44, and it goes like this conversation Jesus is having. Jesus is the one speaking. But he said to them, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? We're going we're gonna to pause to pray one more time, and, I, and part of the reason for that is not just so that we you know, feel like we've had a sort of Christian service moment. I, I think because unless God shows up and helps us see who Jesus is in this text, uh, we might be limiting the impact that, that the scene has in our lives and beyond just this room, just these few minutes together. So would you join me, and not just to, to listen to me pray, but also for yourself, where you're at, with whatever you brought into this room with you, to talk with the Lord and go, Lord, highlight something for me that'll help me know you more. So let's, let's pray to that end. Father, we, we don't want to miss what you want to do in our midst. We don't want to just spend time here and feel good about having gone through a, a church service as maybe we've become familiar with. We want to hear from you. I want to hear from you. So if there's a way in which you could highlight something from this time that would bring us into deeper understanding, deeper joy, deeper conviction of following you in this world and in our everyday lives, I pray that that would happen. I pray that it would happen for your glory, for our good, and also for the good of those who aren't in this room, who don't currently know you, don't currently follow you. We pray for your help to hear your voice. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So it is, it is summer, as this thing falls down on me here. What's going on? All right. It is summer, and uh, a couple of things uh, about summer for me. Uh, 
Travel and food, uh, two of the, un, uh, uh, I guess, taken advantage of love languages in my life. They're not official ones if you know the five love languages, but travel and food, man, they're up there. So uh, as I was thinking about this text, I was thinking about what, what's going on here and what would help us understand this more. So obviously the first thing I thought of was the food chain, Nathan's Hot Dogs. Here's why. There is a competition that this food chain puts on every year to see who can eat the most hot dogs in 10 minutes. Now, I don't know if you're like me and you, maybe you enjoy hot dogs. Uh, to me, the idea of this is kind of like, oh, like that, that sounds tough. So there was a man who, who won uh, this past year, and in 10 minutes, he didn't eat 10 hot dogs. Uh, he, he didn't even eat 20 hot dogs. He, he actually ate more than that. He, more than 30 hot dogs even. So do the math on this. He ate 62 hot dogs in 10 minutes. 62 that, like, I was trying to think, like, how many is that per second? Like, all the movement, all that would have happened. Now, as I, as I describe this man to you, and as if you were to, like, run into him on the street or try to pick him out of a crowd, I, I would imagine we might have some preconceived ideas of what a person who could fit 62 hot dogs into their body in 10 minutes looks like. And I wonder if, as you're picturing who this is, his name is Joey Chestnut, does he look like the person on the screen right now? That's not who I pictured. <laughs> I, I wouldn't pick a man out of the crowd who looks like he probably plays tennis or golf or something and go, I bet you that guy. I, I bet you he could, more than 10, I think he could do 62 hot dogs. And like, I don't even know if he could finish that plate if I were just to see him in the crowd somewhere. Maybe not what I'd pictured. And I wonder for us if we've ever been in a scenario where it's like you're entering into something where you're like, this is not what I pictured. You've had some sort of event you've been planning. You've, you've been waiting for a certain day to arrive, a certain experience to arrive, waiting and waiting and waiting, expecting, imagining, dreaming, planning. And when you get there, have you ever thought to yourself, this is not what I pictured? Similar to maybe being you know, surprised by what a man who can eat 62 hot dogs looks like, I had uh, another companion of mine who uh, wasn't so much on the food side of things, but was on the travel side of things, have this experience of... This is not what I pictured happened to him. He went through a long uh, first half of 2023 this year and, and exhausted by life, exhausted by all these different pressures and surprises, inconveniences, and it was like, you know what, we just got to get away. We're going to go to a place I have been before, a place called Mexico where there's a resort, and me and my family, we will relax. It'll be great. I caught up with this friend of mine and asked him, hey, so how was it? Like, I, I was just so hoping this was life-giving for you, and he's like, well... It's not what I pictured. I was like, well, what? what? Like in my head, when I picture Mexico, I'm picturing like a beach, maybe a nice sunset, uh, maybe some palm trees and, and all, all of what goes into that. And I think that's what he was picturing too. And maybe not what ha- So I was like, well, what, what happened there? He's like, well, we got there. And first of all, it was raining. And I was like, okay, well, that's unfortunate. Hopefully that didn't last. So he's like, so right out, of, right out of the gate, all this experience, all of what I had been expecting wasn't exactly what I had pictured. We show up and like, you know, the area of the city where this resort was, was kind of dirty. There's garbage around. There's dangerous looking people around. So it's like, okay, well, at least we're going to be inside that, that gate. They get through the gate. Oh, there's like a whole bunch of construction going on. Jackhammers, bulldozers. Man, this is noisy. This is inconvenient. This is not what I pictured. But, you know, we'll go inside and we'll just see what it's like. Walks through the door, and for those of you who don't like insects, there's a cockroach is the first thing he sees. Wandering around on the floor, scurrying around. Okay, this is not what I pictured. You know, finds out where his room is. You got to go take the elevator to get there. Okay, kids, let's go. Get in the elevator. Doors closed behind him, and the, the light inside, you know, one little thing going on there to illuminate the space. The light's flickering. Dad, 
uh, it feels like we're in a haunted house. Like, oh, like as a parent, this is not, this is not what I pictured. This is not what I pictured vacation being like. They get to their room, and, and of course the story doesn't get better. Uh, it doesn't. Like the carpets are dirty. They, something was going on with their, their bed sheets. I don't even, like, like what's going on here? It's not what I pictured. And I wonder if we've ever had that kind of experience where it's like we had an expectation. We've been waiting for something to come. And it's like this is just not, not what I was thinking. Because sometimes our descriptions of something don't quite match our experience of that something. And I think that's what was happening to the people in this story. They had a description of the Christ, a term we're going to explain a little bit in a moment, from their scriptures, repeatedly, an idea of a savior, an idea of a rescuer, an idea of a, of a leader to bring them into a, a much better era than they were experiencing. And now... As we've seen in Luke, and if you've been following with chapter 20, they've got a man in front of them, baffling them with a question about the identity of this Christ. And I want to, and in just the brief time we have, argue today that this text confronts us with a topic, and I would say it is the single most important topic, a big claim, the single most important topic any of us could think about. Who is the Christ Really? We need to define some terms. We need to explain what, what we mean by that. And I think as we look at this scene, we'll, we'll get an explanation why. We'll get an explanation what this meant for them then. But hopefully, and, and it'll take a bit of work to get there, what it means for us right now. Right now, here in our lives with whatever is going on. So to begin with, let, let's clarify the setting of the scene. Who is Jesus talking to? Well, based on the verses you see around this, it's the leaders of the Jewish people, scribes, probably some of the Sadducees, perhaps uh, they're the ones also representing the, the people that were uh, expected uh, to have this respect amongst the crowds. And now they're threatened by Jesus' teaching. The writer of this, Luke, he's already pointed out earlier in this chapter that there's a curiosity about Jesus and specifically around the authority Jesus has connected to what he is saying. And this scene, like the ones that preceded it, it's about Jesus' defense of who he is. And they're meant, these texts, to get us to think through theology, which, you know, on an August-long weekend maybe seems like a high calling, but looking around this room, I would say, you know, a percentage of us are ready for that. So we'll just go with it and see what, what happens. They've been quizzed by Jesus here. Maybe like sometimes we are, where it's like, well, what does this all really mean? And they're tested along the lines of their perception of the Christ. What does he do with this? They've uh, been stumped by his answers to their questions, and now they're going to be stumped by his question because they don't have answers. The other gospels that record the scene say that nothing, nothing happens beyond this. There's no answer given. Nothing offered. Why? Well, let's look at the way Jesus initiates this bewilderment. So go back to verse 41 here of chapter 20. He said to them, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? So I've already been hinting at this. There's these two words here I want to pause on. They say. So this, this speaks to an expectation, an anticipation, maybe a picture that the people had of, of who this person is going to be, what they're going to be like, how they're going to go about doing all the great promises that they were waiting for. They had a picture in their minds, a picture from scripture, and their picture, though, it was too small. It wasn't quite clear. And, and this reminds me of something that makes me cringe. Uh, you, you, could, you could, I guess, call it a pet peeve. Uh, it's, it's more of something that just makes me 
bristle with sadness, you could say. It's when people watch a movie for the very first time on an airplane. So it's on, you know, like the little screens on the back of the seats, and it's not, you know, it's not very big. You're kind of crammed in there. You're watching this thing across from you. You're being interrupted by stuff. It's, it's that type of moment. It's just, ah, just, I just don't like the idea of that. Or, or even when people watch a movie for the first time on their phones. And I think it's because as somebody with a background in videography, filmmaking, worked in a studio, like I, I, I'm a movie guy. And I, and I want uh, to do what a lot of the advertisers and filmmakers and actors have said when they market their movies is, hey, see this on the biggest screen possible. Maybe you've seen that language on, on posters or social media ads or, or wherever it is. See it on the biggest screen possible. So I do, I, I follow their advice. And uh, if possible, I go to the IMAX because louder sound, larger screen, clearer image. And I, I think this is important for me because especially with the first time you go to see a movie, like you don't know where the plot's going. You're not, you don't even experience the thrills or the, the special effects. You, you're just not, you, you just gotta have it, I would say, to the max, the way the makers intended it. So recently, I, I did this, I, I, as was my custom, you know, I went and saw a movie in this big kind of setting, and I, I, you know, it was, it was great. I'm immersed in it. I'm, I'm, I'm seeing it clearly. I'm seeing it in, the, in this huge format, and I jump into one of the group texts on my phone, and has a bunch of guys I'd worked in a studio with. We all like movies and storytelling and all this stuff, the technical side, yes, but also like the experiential feeling side of it, and I'm describing my experience, and one of them just kind of chimes in, ah, yeah, I'm, I'll probably catch that one on the plane. Like on the plane, because he, he has this trip plan, and he kind of roughed out, is probably when it's going to be available on the plane. I was like, really? Like, why? Like, you know, the, the, that small and that grainy picture, it's so different from the huge and clear picture. Like, why aren't you getting it on the large, like, 70 millimeter IMAX format? The sound's going to be rough. You're, you're listening with headphones, competing with the white noise around you. The picture's going to be grainy. Your understanding of the story is going to be reduced. Okay, Jesse, why are you spending so much time on this? Other than it's like large group therapy for you in this scenario in your life. Okay, here, here, here's why. I think that the Jewish leaders, they had a picture, but like the experience on a plane or on your phone, it was limited to the intent that, that the original promise maker had for it. It was grainy. It wasn't clear. It was, it, it was, and their understanding of what was going on was far too small. They needed the Christ, the idea of the Christ, and the experience of the Christ in a much larger IMAX sized format. And I think what this text is going to do for us, if we're listening, if they were listening, is allow Jesus to give them a bigger picture of what the Christ is, what the Christ is. And in the process, perhaps also give them a clearer picture of who he is. And that's something we all need right now. Because we're all maybe believing wrong ideas about the Christ at any given moment. We just may not know what they are. We may not see him clearly, may not understand him fully. So how does this text help us do this? So what picture did they have? Let's get on the same page about the language of this scene. What does this word Christ really mean? I, I would expect that for most outside of the church, so you know, they're not maybe with you in this room week after week, this word doesn't have much meaning. Like, it, maybe people see it attached to signs on religious buildings. They hear it used maybe somewhat of a, like, a curse word in movies or television. But maybe that's, a, that's about it. So, so what about us in, in church, though? 
Like, do we see it in, in the Bible? Do we see it in the text, even like you heard it read today or on the screen in some of the songs that we, that we had and assume, well, yeah, that's Jesus' last name, maybe? What, what's, what's going on there? Well, let's, let's do a little bit of, of work. Let's do a little bit of, of, of teaching here. When you see the word Christ in the Bible, that is our English word, which comes from the original Greek word Christos which is the Greek translation of a Hebrew word. That's the original language that you know, the Jewish people had been familiarized with, with their scriptures, the Hebrew word Messiah. And in all cases, the word means anointed one. This is the language used for the one that God would appoint, that God would use for the good of his people. So there's a lot wrapped up, a lot of hope, a lot of anticipation, a lot of expectation on who is going to have this title because of what that title meant. And we need to understand that the Jewish people, they have a longing. Like we all have longings. Well, what their longing was, was for God's chosen savior, for this anointed one to come in victory and to come in power. They had a hope for a Messiah who would overthrow their enemies. You even hear that in the, in the quotation Jesus does. Overthrow their enemies and bring a new era of blessing. Because historically they were conquered. Historically, they were driven from their homeland. Historically, they were exiled under another nation. They eventually do get back home, which is their setting as they're having this interaction with Jesus, but they're also being occupied and ruled by an empire that is not their own. So they're just waiting for the day, like waiting and waiting. We, none of us like waiting. They're waiting and waiting and waiting for the, when this Messiah is going to come, this specific one. And their waiting was fueled by the promises in their scriptures. Many of those promises, one of the favorite ones they had was to mark the Messiah as the son of David. So Jesus picks up on this with a purpose, testing them and showing them that, look, this identification, it's not wrong, but there's far more to it than meets the eye. There is a bigger, there is a better, there is a more enhanced, high definition picture that he wants them to see. And he does this by referring to the psalm that's perhaps quoted more often in the New Testament than any other, Psalm 110. So let's pick this up again at verse 42. David himself, their revered king in history, David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This psalm, is a kingly promise psalm. It articulates the hope of what their ideal king will eventually be. And this, this is describing the authority he's going to have. It's describing who this promised one is going to be like. But there's a conundrum here. And it's perhaps one that we don't easily see. Like, why does this baffle them? What's the, what's the problem here? Like, even as you heard it read, and even as you see it now, like, what's, what's really the, the thing that, that's, that's the point here? Well, follow me for, uh, for a minute on this. We saw in verse 41 that Jesus is holding up this, this belief, this theological belief that they had that the Christ, well, when he eventually comes into the world, be a descendant of King David. So in the long line of kings and sons and family, eventually through that line, there's going to be your Christ. That's where he's going to come from. But also along with that, we have verse 42 and 43 indicating that this descendant is also going to be David's Lord. The picture of him is at God's right hand with a picture of ruling with God. So the expectation then is, is two things. One, the Christ is the son of David. Second, the Christ is David's Lord. So why is this a problem though? 
Like, I get that. I've heard that. Like, what's, what's the deal? Why is Jesus poking at this? Why does nobody respond? Well, verse 44 tells us, David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? In that culture, he can't be both. He can't be both. The assumption there is that, okay, a, a patriarch of a family, they're not going to bow to one of their descendants. They're going to be lesser than their forefathers. So for a, a father, they're not normally bowing or revering a, a son in this way. The dilemma in question is why would David, their king, the one that they look to, one that they want to see replicated again, why is he showing this figure in his own writing such total respect, such total submission to him if he is his son rather than his ancestor? We need to capture this. It's similar to a dilemma that we might face like when we're coming out of college and it's like, I need to find a job. And the job posting says, yes, there's a job available to you, but you need five years of experience to get it. But you, out of college, you don't have that experience. So you're showing up going, well, how am I supposed to get this experience unless you give me that job? Like these two things can't be at once. I need a job, but you're saying I can only get a job if I have experience in the job. Like that's a conundrum. That's a paradox. Similar thing is happening here. Surely he can't be both of these things at once. Surely the Christ can't be both inferior to David, but also superior to him. Like if the Christ is the son of David, uh, is he inferior? But no, 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 the Christ is David's Lord. Oh, oh, so he's superior then. Uh, Which is it? How can they say that Christ is both his descendant and his Lord? What happens? They're right to say it. They just don't realize why. It should have shaped their picture. Jesus' goal isn't to deny either of these two things, but to bring them together and show the relationship between the two concepts. Earlier in this chapter, the question was raised, like, Jesus, like, where are you getting this authority? By what authority are you doing all of this stuff, teaching these things? You should get this, guys. It's by God's authority, and it's an authority that, for some reason, you're not recognizing, but your superior, your king in the past, David, recognized when he called his promised descendant, my Lord. This conundrum is meant to be thought-provoking. Like, why, why are you guys having such trouble piecing all this together? When you have such a knowledge of the scriptures, why are you resisting the fulfillment of these scriptures? It's like he's saying, your picture's too small. You're not seeing it clearly. You need to see the IMAX size, high definition version of who the Christ is. He's surfacing this paradox because he wants to expand their messianic categories. It was always God's intention that David's Lord would become David's son, that heaven itself would come to earth. And rather than a mere human king, they had pictured, like other human rulers who would come and fight battles and, and restore a nation, perhaps even a nation's temple. Scripture is pointing to the reality that the true king would be the embodiment of God himself, who will have victory, who will be enthroned, who will rule and bring justice, but on a far grander scale from a far greater position than they had imagined. The meaning of Christ, that term, that title, it was bigger than they realized, greater than they had pictured. And I wonder if, for us, if we understand that when we sing, when we pray, when we think about Jesus Christ, if we're picturing all of what that means, that it's not just a last name, but it's a title. When we 
sing it, when we pray about it, when we use it, when we see it in our, in our devotional time, reading through scripture, are we, are we picturing Jesus, the Messiah, anointed by God, chosen Savior, King, divinely appointed for the great work he has as prophet, as priest, as King of his people? All of this is in there. And the New Testament will intricately unpack all of that to try to help us wrap our minds around him not just as a rescuer, not just as a ruler, but both of these things together from both the human level and the God-sized level. So the scene ends there. Like, that's, that's it. If you're looking at Luke in front of you, like, there's no response. Just abruptly ends. There's stumped. There's no response. But as I, as I was waiting for my, my mug to fill with, with coffee this morning, I'm standing there in my kitchen going, I, I wonder if, for the people there then, that this was a pivotal moment in their life. A pivotal turning point where they went, I get it. Where maybe their, maybe their eyes were open and they went, this is not what I had pictured. This is better than what I had understood. And I, and I kind of have been wondering this morning if that's exactly what the Lord wants to do for you for me, to, to open our eyes with a term that we're just so familiar with and, and stretch it, expand it, and help us to see what this really means for us in a bigger, clearer, better way. Because I think Luke is recording this to tell his audience, like, look, he, here's the one. Here, here is the one that God has invested with authority to give us all the blessings of his grace. Here is the one that, that, that God has chosen before whom all the enemies of God are going to submit. Here is the one who's both son of David, who's also Lord of David, and he should be honored with the same allegiance you would give to a king. Like we, we lose the force of this a bit, I, I think, because we live in a democracy. We, you know, our relationship with a king, is, it's so like, impersonal. And for most of us, if you're like me, it seems kind of irrelevant at times. Like, what, like what, what is this? Like Many of us, we might vote for our leaders. Some of us, we, we might like our leaders. But how, how many of us are really like, are, are deeply loyal to, fiercely like, you know, trusting of our leaders? And yet, Jesus is seen in the same way as, as a leader. So how, how can we think about this when, when there's not really any modern comparison for us? Listen, listen to these helpful thoughts from, from one commentator commenting on this passage. The image of Jesus as a regal figure installed and worthy of honor is lost in a world of elected leaders. But Jesus' presence in heaven, at the side of his father enables him to dispense divine blessings. A place like Acts 2:30 to 36 will pick this up. It enables him to be appointed as judge of the living and the dead, as you can see in Acts 10 or 17. And furthermore, his rule does not emerge through congressional committee, nor does he serve at the whim of humanity. His commission comes from a higher call and functions at a permanent plane. The conclusion being, our responsibility to him is greater than to any other being. Any other being. Like there's something immensely important about seeing Jesus clearly, isn't there? 
like for the Jewish people, that they needed to see that if David, their most revered king, showed such respect to the promised king to come, like how ought they, all the way down the line years later, how ought they to respond? And how ought we today? These aren't, I hope what we're seeing, like these aren't just like big ideas to appreciate. They're not just concepts to go, yeah, like I agree with all that. They're not just ideas. They're not just concepts. This is a person to give your life to wholeheartedly. And not just because this is said by Jesus and written down by Luke, not just because it's in a, in a book that we bring to church. Like, no, there's a moment in, in human history where these truths, they weren't just claimed or spoken or said or written down and passed down to us. No, these things were proved, proven. Let me just read for you six verses. The opening to the book of Romans that describes this so well. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, there's that term again, Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, now don't miss this, who was descended from David, according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God, in power, according to the spirit of holiness. By what? By claims? By stuff written down? No, by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom, through whom we've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to who? Jesus Christ. The reality of what the psalm that Jesus quotes in, in Luke 20, the reality of that, it, it's much clearer today for those of us who live on the other side of the resurrection than it would have been for them then. Because right now, Jesus has been raised. He is ruling at God's right hand, a position of authority. And the implications of this, I think, are far bigger than we picture. In Acts 2, they pick up on this. They don't miss this. Luke's second volume in the New Testament that he also writes later on, describing this, this first moments after Jesus' resurrection and, and moving to God's right hand. And there's this moment in Acts 2 I want to flag for us. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. So these are the people, his first followers. They were witnesses of these things. This was the conclusion they drew. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Unless Jesus is this type of Christ, none of this happens. This is all bound up in that term. We need to see, we need to picture, we need to understand and relate to rightly Jesus as the Christ. Do you you see why the question, who is the Christ, really is such an important topic? Perhaps the most important topic that we could possibly think about. I think it's because as we come to know him rightly and all of who he is, not just things that we're familiar with and we don't fully understand to the depths of reality, things like the term Christ, as we come to understand him more and more deeply and rightly, I'm convinced we come to experience him 
practically. So, practically then, what, how does this land? How ought this to land? How could this land? For those of us who are, who are sitting here trying to wrap our minds on this Christ idea with all of what this text is, is pointing towards, I think there's, there's, four, there's four categories that, that for me have, have been so gripping that I, I want to try to convey and, and share and, and explain. Four things, confidence in Christ, contentment in Christ, consecration to Christ, and commitment to Christ. Four areas, I believe, that a huge and a clear picture of Jesus as Christ practically makes a difference in, not just in like, you know, the, the 45 minutes we, we spend attentive to him on a Sunday morning, but in every moment of our lives. So let's, let's briefly look at, at each of these four. Confidence in Christ. There, there are a lot of examples of, of how we could find confidence in Christ. Some of them more intellectual and involving our perspective, some of which more practical, some of which that are a bit of both. I, I want to just give us one area of confidence that I think a deeper and clearer picture of the Christ makes for us. And I think it's in the area of prayer, of how we pray, of what we think about when we pray. Last summer... Uh, I had a, a teenager text me a question, and the question was in context of, of months and months of watching one of his loved ones, his father, go through a life-threatening illness. And you can imagine for anybody, especially if you've been there yourself, you, you know like, that's, that's a tough road to walk. And so for me, I, I, I'm trying to be as available as possible, while also giving as much space as possible. So it had been a long time before I'd actually you know, heard uh, from him, but he breaks the silence one evening with this text that pops up on my phone, and it, and it startled me, and I, and I sat thinking about it, and I still think about it. The question was, how can I find confidence in my prayers it's a question we might ask generally, but for him, it was immensely personal and practical and relevant for what he was going through. And I wonder right now, is that a question you're asking? Yeah, all this theory, all this idea, all this teaching about Jesus as the Christ, that's, that's good and all, and I'm sure it's true, but right now, boy, I could just really use some confidence in him. I could just really use some motivation to pray because I've been praying. I've tried to pray. I've tried to think about prayer. But I just, I don't know if I have the confidence for it. How do I find that? Here's why this helps for me, understanding all of what the Christ is and how that relates to our prayers. When we understand all that Jesus being the Christ means, specifically from this text, actually, I think we find a level of unique confidence in him because he's the one who invites us and gives us access to our Father in heaven. So we see these two things, son of David. We see these things, David's Lord. Why does that give us confidence? Well, think about this. On the one hand, son of David, that reminds us of the deep connection that Jesus, as the Christ, has with us as people who live in the real physical world. He understands what it's like to live life as a person. Facing the same stresses, the same pressures, the same inconveniences and challenges and temptations of real life like, like we do. He gets you. But that's not quite all. As son of David, that's, that's true. But as Lord, there's more to it. As Lord, we're reminded of his close relationship, not just in understanding humanity, from the ground level, 
we understand his close relationship with our Father in heaven. And the divine power from his position on the throne to not just see us and know us, but to accomplish more than we could ask or imagine. There's no one else like this. There's no one more qualified. There's no better choice than this type of Christ. Maybe we feel like, oh, God doesn't, God doesn't see or doesn't get what I'm going through. He's out there. He's, he, he's disconnected from my experience. Was well, the son of David, he's not. Oh, I, don't know, I don't know if God could really do anything about this. Well, as David's Lord, he can. Like, I wonder, do, do you need some confidence in prayer today? Maybe we ought to find it in the Christ, the one who gets you, the one who has the power to help you. Confidence in Christ. But secondly, another one, contentment in Christ. It's, it's summer, and, I, and like, I feel like this is a time of year where we, I don't know, maybe this is just me. I'll just share my experience and see if that's true of you. Where you just kind of want to relax and enjoy life. Like perhaps more than any other time of the year, like, like we, you know, our schedule's built so we can take time off school or work, uh, you know, maybe do some travel, maybe find a Nathan's hot dog stand somewhere. You know, we can do all these things. And, and I personally love it. And here's a confession. I, I personally love summer because I am addicted to comfort. I, I love to arrange my life in a way where it's as maximum relaxation enjoyment as possible. But, but honestly, as I've been thinking through this text and, and specifically who this text is about and what the Christ means, I think there's actually something more than just the temporary comfort a summer could possibly provide. I think that when we understand all that Jesus being the Christ means, we find a unique contentment in him. Like when I think about Jesus as king, I can, I can rest and relax more deeply than any other way I could manipulate with my, my schedule or my money or whatever. Because it's like I can work this into my mind. Okay, as Christ, I see him as Lord. And so the Lord, he, he's in control. I'm loved by this Lord. He's the supreme power in the universe. And, and regardless of, of what happens, how, how good things are this summer, how bad things might turn out to be in the future, how much I succeed, how much I fail, how much I get what I want, how much I might lose what I have, the end of the story is one that's so bound up with him as the Christ. Because he's in control. Because he's in control of the ending of the story, regardless of what mine looks like. Because the end of the story is, is a, a future with him, where there is no more death, no more crying, no more mourning, no more pain. Contentment in that reality. Like maybe, maybe for you, and this is, this is for me, one of, the, one of the, the greatest killers of joy and, and rest is focusing on what I, what I don't yet have. And, and what's weird is that there's always something you don't have. Like think about this, like maybe at some point it's like, well, okay, I'm single and I don't have a relationship. And then you get it. And it's like, okay, uh, I'm married, uh, but I don't have kids. Okay, uh, maybe you get that. Okay, well, once you have them, okay, I'm married and I have kids. But I live in BC, so I'm never going to have a home. <laughs> okay. But you, like, you get it, right? Like, there's, there's, always, there's always something more. There's always something more you could get. You get the home. Okay, great. Well, now uh, I don't have a, a sectional. I don't have, I, you know, there's always something more, and this goes on and on and on. There's always more comfort to be had. There's always more to consume. But contentment, specifically in this type of Christ, 
comes as we embrace what he's already given us. And more than that, as we anticipate what he has promised to one day give us. Not preoccupied with comfort, not striving and striving to consume more, but embracing the gift of contentment in Christ. Like, I I wonder if there's something God wants you today to see about Jesus to lead you into a deeper contentment over this summer with all of what remains in your plans or not. Could there be something about contentment in Christ he wants to flag for you? But thirdly, consecration to Christ. So, fun fact, I don't think I've ever used the word consecration in a sermon before, and it's probably because I don't really use it in general. But I I wrote it down, and after going back and forth on it, I chose to leave it today because for me, it's been far more thought-provoking than any other word choice I had. And here's why. I think that when we understand all of what Jesus being the Christ means, we find a unique motivation to be seriously devoted to godliness. How's that for a sell in a sermon on like a summer message, right? Like godliness, serious devotion, if that's what consecration is about. But as I've, as I've kind of pressed this into my perspective, I think, yeah, it's actually true. When I think of Jesus at this level, I, I resist temptation and I repent of sin far more often. Because it's where we realize, okay, Jesus, he was the anointed one, appointed for the task of being the sacrifice for my sin before a holy God. It's where we realize the righteousness of Christ becomes ours. Even in the text we read from Jeremiah, the Lord is our righteousness. This becomes ours through faith in him so we can stand before this perfect, before this holy God without fear of punishment. Because we've been gifted a sacred purity apart from our effort. So we put this into our minds. Okay, the Lord himself is holy. The Christ himself sees me. What do I do with that? I I must chase down and pursue godliness in my everyday life. And that feels like, wow, that feels like a taller. That can't possibly be, you know, what what God is asking me. Like, Like, how many of us are thinking about our goals in life right now and going, yeah, you know, I'm just really working on godliness. I just want to be more godly. Is that in your five-year plan? Did you talk that one through with your, with your spouse? Or did you write that down in some sort of you know, trajectory as you start college somewhere? I just really want to be more godly. Like, it sounds ridiculous, and in some ways it is. And there's a great tradition for Christians being ridiculous. If you think about the original term, Christian, it was a term of ridicule. We've talked a lot about the word Christ today. Well, imagine this. In the early church, people who were living in Jesus' way, they were ridiculed as little Christs or Christians because they're living life like him. Not living in corruption of the culture around them. Not compromising on God's way. No, consecrating themselves to Christ. And I think when we capture this type of picture of Jesus, it's like what happened to a friend of mine recently who told me, hey, I've stopped using my Disney Plus account. I'm like, why? He's like, well, it's not leading me into holiness. I'm like, that sounds really nerdy, man. Like, I don't know. Like, but you think about it, I'm like, no, he gets it. I was like, what do you mean it's not leading you into holiness? Well, it's leading me into sin. I'm thinking things I shouldn't be thinking. I'm seeing things I shouldn't be seeing. It's like he understands. I know who I'm in a relationship with. 
It's Christ. And I know where he's leading me. And where he's leading me is not, is into making decisions about how I spend my time. What about for us? Like, is there a place in your life the Holy Spirit might even be, as we've even sort of pushed at this a little bit, is there a place he's highlighting for you right now? Is there an opportunity for increased and serious devotion to the Holy One who loves you and gave himself for you as the Christ? Consecration to him. But finally, commitment to Christ. And, and consecration and commitment, are, are, they're, they're close to synonyms. But I added this fourth takeaway here for, for a specific reason. I, I wanted us to think about this term in the sense of a first-time commitment. Like, let's, let's briefly look at just one more place in our time today in the Bible. Acts chapter 2, which says this. Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, so the crowd hears this message, they, they were cut to the heart. And Peter and the rest of the apostles, and they say to this to them, brothers, what shall we do? Is that the posture you have when you hear the message about the Christ? Like, what should I do? I'm caught to the heart. What should I do? Well, this is what Peter said to them. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, first of all. But also, here's what happens. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. When we understand all that Jesus being the Christ means, I think we find a level of like unique motivation to make some life-changing choices. Some of you have made life-changing choices in response to Jesus already. I wonder if there's another one, or I wonder if maybe there's a first-time one for someone in this room. I didn't want to end today without bringing this opportunity to the surface. The, the original message about Christ put people in a place where they made some life-changing commitments they repented, meaning they turned away from living life their own way. They believed in Jesus, in his work, and who he was, and they gave their lives to him. They were baptized, publicly identifying with their Christ. And I wonder if this is one of the things you need to consider today. It's quite possible you're here today and you're bearing the weight of your sin on your own. You haven't received God's forgiveness. It's quite possible you're here today and haven't given your life wholeheartedly to him. It's possible you're here today and, and haven't been baptized yet. It's possible you're here today and haven't shared this good news with someone you know needs it. And this is our good news. There is a king of the universe. He loves us. He is ruling and will rule as the promise connected to David's throne said all throughout scripture, he will rule forever without end. So how have we responded to this reality? The promise of Christ is for all of us. And so as we come to this point in our service, I wonder if there's something you need to talk to Christ about. Maybe it's an area you need confidence in him. An area you need contentment in him. 
an area where you're like, man, I need to consecrate myself to him. Or maybe an area where it's like, wow, for the first time, I need to commit in this way to him. So I'm going to give you some space. I'm going to pray for us, but I, I want you to talk to God more than listen to me talk to God in response to who he is and what he has done. So let's pray it together. Lord, you are in our our midst right now, and I pray that what you want to accomplish would happen. I pray that the things you have highlighted for each person would be not left to just observation, like, oh, God pointed that out, but would be led into talking with you about that. Jesus, thank you for life change that is available, both for now and forever, because you came to be the Christ. Because you came as a man, as David's son. But that required you to leave heaven as Lord and do what we could not. So thank you for that. May that provoke fresh awe, a bigger picture of who you are, and how we ought to live life with you and in you this summer and beyond. We give ourselves to you for your glory, for our good. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.